to come out with me to the first epistle of Peter, the first epistle general of Peter, and chapter 3, and at verse 18. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. In this epistle, Peter speaks about the sufferings of believers. He teaches it for granted that no person can go through life without suffering, that no Christian can go through and by this world <coughs> without suffering at the hands of the world. And that was very typical of Peter's day. Jesus warned his own disciples, marvel not if the world hate you, if they persecute the master, they will persecute his servant. And then Peter speaks in this very epistle about suffering as a Christian. Christian suffering. And he tells us how we are to conduct ourselves under Christian suffering. It is better he says, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Then, if we do evil and suffer for it, we have no reward. But if we do well and suffer for it, then we are in good company. For Christ, who never did sin, has then suffered the just for the unjust to bring us to God. And having dealt with the believer's suffering, he now comes to the sufferings of the Master. And to that I want to draw your attention tonight. For Christ also has once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And we'll just draw your attention to three things. The first is that Christ suffered unto death. That's what people mean when he speaks about Christ's suffering. And the second thing I want to do is, is that Christ suffered for others. The just for the unjust. And the third thing I want to notice is that Christ suffers no more. Christ also has once suffered. And the sufferings now are past. First thing, Christ suffered unto death. That is the significance of the word in the context. We see in verse 4 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. For Peter means the very ultimate of suffering, death. Yet the suffering of Christ <coughs> did not begin at Calvary or even just Germany. The shadow of the cross lay over the whole life of our Lord, from Bethlehem right to Golgotha. He is known as the man of sorrow. 
That's how the prophet describes him, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Not just because he moved among suffering, as a doctor or a surgeon in a hospital now, or as a nurse in the ward. Oh, that's true. He was surrounded by those who suffered all kinds of sickness and disease. The blind, the horse, the lame, the demons of death. And they came to him and they were healed. But, although he alleviated suffering himself, he himself suffered. Himself, says the prophet, bear our infirmities and carried our sicknesses. Or as the same prophet puts it, in all our afflictions, he was afflicted. Oh yes, he suffered. But that never lets him know or dejected. The man of sorrow was not the man of the heavy countenance, not the man of the silent face. It's wrong to think of Christ as essentially miserable. Before he himself speaks about a secret joy he had, a joy he came to share with his disciples. My joy I give unto you, my peace too. So that in the midst of all his sorrow and suffering, our Lord had the joy of doing the will of the Father and the joy of being in constant fellowship with his Father God. So my prayer that he passed the secret on to his disciples. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we are exceeding joyful in all our tribulations, not the end, in the midst of them, not after they're over. Not joy alternating with sorrow, but joy experienced in the midst of sorrow, peace in the midst of battle. Now, when you think of it, is it not a wonderful thing that Christ suffered? He also seems so wrong. If any man should have escaped suffering, it was the sinless Son of God, the perfect man. And why would he conducted himself in a way that should have made the world love him? And yet he says, marvel not that the world hate you, it hated me before it hated you. But he gave his whole life as a service to his generation in healing the sick, in teaching the ignorant, in evangelizing the people. And what gracious words flowed from his lips, just as gracious acts of healing flowed from his touch. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach blood tidings to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim deliverance to the captives. You open the prison to those that are dying. You have sent me to bring light to blind eyes, strength to lame legs. You have sent me to proclaim the jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord. Surely a man like that could have no enemy. Surely his life would be one of tranquility. 
is of activity, yet the whole world was against him. Both Jew and Gentile, Pilate and Herod, and the rulers of the religion of Israel, the scribes and authorities, he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of the Lord and afflicted. All combined against the anointed of Jehovah. And what is more wonderful still is that God himself subjected him to suffering. You read it. It pleased the Lord to grieve him. He had put him to grief. And it was no small thing. It was not just the rod that smote him, it was the sword that was plunged into his heart. And he goes forward against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, smite the shepherd. And there was no sparing of the sword. So much so that the Lord cried in, 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 that, in that mysterious cry, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? Here is God's beloved son, in whom he was well pleased, and he suffered. Well, sometimes men complain about being treated unjustly. And sometimes they repine against God himself. And the querulous question comes to the lips, why should this happen to me? Job was perplexed, a good man, and a just, who feared God and his feared evil, and yet he suffered. But a greater than Job is here, one who is altogether sinless, and he suffered. And my friends, in the light of the sufferings of Jesus, why should a living man complain? Not one of us has any reason to open his mouth when we are in the company of him who is led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before a shearer, so he opened not his mouth. He suffered, and he suffered without complaint. The suffering of Jesus, as we saw, commented in death, in the death of the cross. They were hurt all along the way hurt from his own family. His brethren did not believe in him. Hurt from his own citizens in Nazareth. They tried the same headman over the brow of the hill and hit the city itself. Hurt from the time of his adoption, Capernaum. Hurt from priests and scribes and Pharisees. But his suffering seems to have been concentrated in the last few days, even hours of his life on earth, in Gethsemane, in the trial before Pilate, and you can still see the judgment seat they had just been arrested about 20 years ago in Jerusalem, the Gabbatha, and there you can see the very pavement in which he must have stood and to be judged by Pilate. The trial was a travesty, travesty of justice, and Pilate knew he knew that the Jews had given him over because of envy and because he interfered by his truth teaching with a vested lie. 
Ah, but the sufferings of Christ were not confined to the physical side of things. Even the most excruciating sufferings of the cross, the very word excruciating has the word cross in its very center. It was the violent and most cruel and worst type of execution that the Romans knew. In fact, it was not devised by them. We borrowed it from clear and fierce pagan nations. But the sufferings of Christ lie especially in the heart and in the soul. As one has put it, the sufferings of his soul were the soul of his suffering. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Others have suffered outwardly as much as Jesus did. Many of those who followed him, who were martyrs of him, suffered crucifixion. And they suffered outwardly as much pain as he did. At least the infliction of what causes pain. And why should his sufferings be so different? Oh, because his sufferings were inward. Because he suffered in his, in his soul. Because he suffered not just the wrath of men, but the wrath of God. He suffered the very curse of God. There's a mystery of it. There's a depth of it. The martyrs did not suffer the wrath of God. And many of them went joyfully into their death. Because they were upheld and bowed by their faith in Christ in the presence of the Redeemer with him. In all their afflictions he was afflicted. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's body famous, there was another there supporting them, delivering them, cutting them through. But he had no such support. And he bore the wrath and the curse of God. That brings me to Lily's second thought. Christ suffered for others. Here we have it. We are told that Christ suffered for sin. And then we are told that he suffered for the unjust. He suffered for sin. And he suffered for the unjust. I think that there are three things in this statement that require our attention. The first is that his sufferings were penal sufferings. They were a punishment. They were for sin. And then the second thing is that they were vicarious sufferings. He suffered for the unjust. Now, he suffered for us. Well, he suffered in the room instead of others, not for himself. So they were what is called vicarious sufferings. They were in the place of others. And the third thought, as we consider Christ's suffering for others, is that they were a pain suffering, that he might bring us to God. They were for reconciliation, to follow Atonement. Let's look then, but here we have the answer to the question, why did Jesus suffer? And why did he suffer the wrath of God? He was the, the Holy One of Israel. He was the sinless Son of Man. God himself said, this is my Son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. He could say, 
toutes les vieilles qui sont en train de détruire ça, qui challenge dans le Covid-19, même qu'on n'a pas de fin de la communauté en tout des manières de cela, on est là, parce que c'est un peu établi. Mais nous, nous devons corriger ce marché, à l'éternité-là. Oh, meilleur que God himself. He says, giving him a clean bill of moral health. This is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And to please God, you need perfection. Why then did he suffer? Because he suffered for sin. Sin and suffering go together. Like seed time and harvest. Indeed, the suffering is the harvest of sin. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also eat. And this explains the suffering of the ordinary man. If we suffer, then we suffer because of our sin. I don't say that suffering and sin must be immediately corrected, and that the greater sufferers in this world are the greater sinners, far from it. But just as a general principle, where there is sin, there must be suffering. Moral evil and physical evil, as Kalari says in his French Revolution, must go together. How suffering for sin came to be associated with the sinless Son of God, we shall see in a moment. But meantime, I want you to notice that the sufferings of Jesus were penal suffering. Sin deserves punishment. Sin deserves death. The soul that sinneth shall die. The world lightly dismisses sin. The church even minimizes sin. And even evangelicals gloss over sin today. One of the greatest lacks of our present day is a sense of sin. And that's why the gospel is so little appreciated. For there is no sense of sin. There is no appreciation of Christ. That cannot be. Because he is the sinner's saviour, and the gospel is for sinners only. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But whether men believe it or not, whether the church teaches it or not, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And there is no such thing in the eyes of God as a peccadillo, a little sin. There is no such thing before God as a, a real sin, a sin that, as the Irishman says, deserves to be forgiven. You can brush it aside and say, it doesn't really matter, God's not going to kind of speak. Abba God must. Dr. John Gaston once said in his own cryptic, aphoristic way, sin defines the effect. Sin defines dear son, which being interpreted means that sin, even a small sin, is out to put God on his throne and to kill God. Therefore, God is dead theology today. It's wishful thinking. Some people would like to think that God was dead. That's what sin is out, it's out to kill God. Sin defines dear side. And God, as a moral ruler of the universe, must do the sin. And he cannot wince at it. Ultimately, he can't let it go. So hands down in hands, the sinner must be punished. Sin at least must be punished. 
And so when Jesus died, when he suffered, he suffered for sin. Not his own, but he suffered for sin. The pain of suffering for sin. But then let me just repeat what I said. That his sufferings were vicarious, that means for others. He suffered for us. Chapter 4, verse 1. For as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, has suffered for us. Okay. Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Or in the old evangelical phrase, in our womb and sin. But then perhaps I hear someone say, what's that right? What is just for the sinless Jesus to bear the sin of the unjust man? Ought God to have allowed it? Is vicarious suffering a right thing? Well, it's right or wrong. It has taken place. Many have suffered for others. We have died for others to save them. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Most people know the sensation of the two or three cities by Dickens for Sidney Cotton, who took the place of a man destined for the tumbrils and the bulletin, goes to his death nobly. The noblest thing he himself said that he ever did in a worthless life. But then is it right that the magistrate should inflict the punishment due to another upon an innocent person? Well, perhaps is that no just case, there might be a demoral here. But then, if Jesus is sinless, if Jesus is sinless, morally without any fault, he was not guiltless. Why? Because he takes our guilt upon him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it was right and proper that they should be saved because, you see, Jesus came not as a separate individual. He did not come into this world as we come into this world, even though he was born a babe. A baby thing that made a woman cry. Oh, yes, he is like us in this. But he came as a new beginning. He came as the second Adam, the last Adam indeed. He came with a full race in himself, just as the first Adam was constituted the covenant head of a human race. So between Jesus and his people, who sins he bears, who sins he bore, there is this federal connection, this covenant connection, he is not a private individual, he is a federal head of a new race. And just as it was right for God, because of the covenant relationship between Adam and his posterity, 
to attribute Adam's first sin to all posterity. So that is the sin we begin with, original sin. The sin, the birth of Adam's first sin. And of his first sin only, so it is right and proper and lawful for God to impute the righteousness of Christ to uh, his, his own way, to the messianic race, if you like to put it. It is right and proper and legitimate for him to impute the righteousness of Christ of the federal head to his spiritual posterity as he imputed the guilt of our sins to our covenant head, even Jesus. It is a federal principle that makes just, morally just, the implication, the counter-implication of our sin to Christ and of Christ's righteousness to us, the just for the unjust. And that leads me to the third thing, that the sufferings of Christ were not only penal and vicarious, but atoning and reconciling. It was to bring us to God. That was why he came to reconcile God and sinners. That's the very heart of the gospel. The praise of mercy is him, God and sinners reconciled. That lies at the very center and core of the gospel we preach. For you see, it's sin that drives the wedge in between God and man. The first effect of the first sin was Adam's hiding from God. He stopped under the bushes of the garden because he was afraid to see God, for he was a sinner. And it is sin that makes us afraid to draw near to God. And the realization that there is guilt in us, and that God must punish guilt for he finds guilt. Even if he finds guilt in pity to his own son, he must punish it. That God was in Christ when he laid on him the iniquity of us all. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not in keeping the cross of sin, but laying one upon his own son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself when he suffered the just for the unjust on Calvary's tree. And there he made an end of sin. For all them things, the Lamb of God lifted off the sin of the world. Then he is the propitiation for our sins. If any man sins, we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the believer who looks to the Lamb of God, who looks to him who is crucified for, for, for us, and says, Payment, God will not Christ demand, once for my bleeding shirt his hands, and then again for mine. Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, that he might unite us once again in fellowship and communion, put our hand in the hand of God, and make friends between us. This was why the Father sent him, this is why Jesus came, and for this purpose he died upon the cross, to bring us to God, to, to introduce us again into that fellowship from which we were expelled. 
to bring us back into the paradigm we lost, and ultimately to bring us into the heaven of God, into the joy and light and love of that blessed society. But then we say, if he died, the just for the unjust, if he was suffering for penal and vicarious and the attaining and reconciling, who are those who are going to benefit by it? So, of course, as a second Adam, he goes for charity. But you say that doesn't bring me much further on. Is there any chance for me? Well, does Jesus not say? Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Does he not say, Come unto me, all ye that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Does he not say, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out? Is it not true that he said, I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners? Sinners to repent them. Sinners to save, sinners to fellowship, sinners to service, sinners to reward of glory. It's all there. For this is a faithful thing and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, if he saved me, insolent and injurious, then he can say then, you know the story of Dr. John MacDonald of Berencash when he was preaching in the Perthshire in his apostolic ministry. And one of those who waited on his ministry met the Lord who was approved of these things. And he said to the man, I hear you've been having that fire bombs in Berencash with you. He'll be sending you all to hell. Now, said the other, in the pressure of God, now he says, only those that will repent. Only those who won't repent. That's where there's repentance and where there is praise. There is a welcome. A abundant praise. Come and welcome. The last thing I want to notice, and briefly, is that Christ suffers no more. We must not leave out that little word yet, that monosyllable. For Christ has also once suffered for sin. Once and once for all. There is the blasphemy of the Roman Catholic mass. It's not just communion. It's not just a sacrament. They claim it to be a sacrifice. And because they claim it to be a sacrifice, that's why the priest has got the real name of priest. He's offering the sacrifice of the mass of the altar. And so he is putting Christ to an open chain, continually offering up the Son of God. For our scripture says, once for all. When it is appointed unto men once to die, and because this is a once experience, so Jesus once suffered, and he suffers no more. If you read these repetitions, on the cross, Jesus cried out to his spirit. The word which is used in the original is even more significant. For it means not just that the suffering of Jesus was now over, 
but it had completed the purpose for which he was sent and for which he endured the suffering. It is completed, might be a good translation. It is over, no, it is completed, it is finished in his sense. Not just done with, but completed. I have finished the work that thou givest me to do. And by that one offering, he has perfectly forever won the earth's Christ won't suffer. But Christ doesn't suffer now. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, but now he is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. He is the reigning Christ. The Christ of glory. Waiting until his enemies are made fruitful, waiting to return. To take his people to be with himself, to bring them even nearer God in the blessed eternity. Christ has once suffered, and now he has exalted a prince and a savior to give repentance to Israel and remission of sin. Let us pray.